welcome to the BGSM Podcast. I'm Daniel Friedman, and today I feel very privileged to be speaking with Dr. Louise Tullow, the recently elected president of the Australasian College of Sport and Exercise Physicians. With over 20 years of clinical experience as a sport and exercise physician, Louise has been a trailblazer for women in medicine everywhere. Louise, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks, Daniel. It's lovely to be here chatting with you. Firstly, congratulations on recently becoming the president of ACSEP. And for our international listeners, can you start by giving a brief overview of the college and your role as president? Sure, Daniel. The Australian College of Sport and Exercise Physicians, so we'll describe that as the ACP from here, um, trains and supports specialist doctors in sport and exercise medicine in Australia and New Zealand. And it was founded by a group of doctors working in sports and mostly in associated with elite teams in 1985. Um, it was recognised as a specialty in New Zealand in 1998 and in Australia in 2009. So it's a fairly new college. Um, we have at the moment around 175 fellows and 75 doctors in training, what we call registrars, and they train mostly in community settings in private clinics, which is quite unique for specialty training in, apart from primary care in Australia and New Zealand. And so the role of president is both internal and external. So internally, you are working closely with the CEO, the board and the committees to deliver the core functions of the college and to de deliver and create strategy. And you're also responding to a lot of member issues as they come up. And externally, you're representing the college in various forums, meetings, with stakeholders around advocacy and so forth. And personally, what I've noticed and experienced is that there is a big tendency to drown in email. What does it mean to you to be the first female president in the college's 34-year history? Yeah, so I'm the 17th president and the first woman. So when I was the vice president preparing to take on this role, I naively just wanted to get on with the job of being president, for, uh, which for me followed a board role and chairing our examination committee and some other college roles. I did not want to be the puppet to solve a quota problem or the token woman or the female president. I was just ready to be the president. And that thinking actually is very common at, uh, amongst women considering leadership roles. And we do need to get over that to a certain extent because given we are competent enough for the job, there is a time where female leadership needs to be made very visible. And so the label female leadership is going to be around for a little, a female leader is going to be around for a little while. So I can't untangle that fact that we're still in this period of firsts when it comes to gender, you know, first female prime minister have a baby in office and so forth. And I need to keep that gender lens on and recognise that my visibility in this role is important and I can't shy away from the gender issue. So having said that, I felt completely supported by our membership and I think that's come from being adequately competent in my track record and also clear leadership from our board and particularly driven by our last president, Adam Kastrican, who is a male champion of change. The ACSEP is one of 15 specialist medical colleges in Australia, of which only two other presidents are women. And it seems that despite gender parity at medical schools in Australia since the year 2000, women's upward mobility into medical leadership roles remains restricted. And so my question for you is, what are some of the barriers to women attaining leadership positions in medicine today? Well, I think the barriers in medicine parallel the barriers in many or in fact, all other industries. Certainly in medicine, numbers 
at entry level and in medical schools have been at parity for a number of years. And to, we're not seeing that, that parity at, at levels of leadership and in professorial roles, in the issuing of grants and in research publications. So there's obviously an issue between in the career pipeline and progression toward leadership. So if we look at some of the barriers to women in leadership in general, we could be here for hours talking about that. But if we pull in some of the more common common things, some of the ideas are that there are not, some of the reasons are there are not enough capable or skilled women at those upper levels, or that they choose to have children and prioritise family above career. And the myth still gets thrown around that women are not ambitious. So I think if we look at those first two factors a bit more, um, I think the main thing is that there is systemic and implicit gender bias running throughout a lot of organisations that prevent that progression of women through their career and into leadership. So women are not getting the opportunity to progress along the way and build the experience on their CV so that they can pop up at those higher or more challenging levels and say, look, here I am, I've got all this experience. And that's because they get overlooked through, for various reasons all the way through. So they don't get those earlier jobs, therefore they don't get the second level of jobs and they don't get the, the, the richness or the experience demonstrating on this CV. So that's a big challenge and one of the ways that we can get around that will be to actually be transparent in our gender metrics right through the organisation so that you can, any organisation, so that you can see where there's a lack of transition and ex dig down and explore why that is in a more micro level. There's also this perception of what leadership looks like. So the sort of gender stereotypes, if you will, and I'm fully cognizant that we are talking about stereotypes here and generalizing and that, you know, many people do not fit into either ends of these polarities. But leadership qualities are often associated with masculine traits. We are familiar with masculine styles of leadership and we typically will interpret that style of leadership as strong, whereas feminine polarity in leadership is more, tends to be more collaborative. It gives away credit for results. It's often based on more soft people skills rather than task completion skills, which are easy to measure. It's less directive and it's less confident. And at this point, I think we can sort of, we know there's some very visible examples of these polarities of leadership in globe, on the global stage at the moment. But this, this concept of interpreting soft people skills and that feminine style of leadership as weak in comparison with the masculine style is a barrier to acknowledging women bring value to leadership. And partly that's a familiarity issue. issue. And then if we see women step into that masculine style, they then find themselves in this concept of a double bind where they're then viewed as overly aggressive or unfeminine. So they can't win either way. They're too soft or they're too aggressive. And that's very frustrating for women. One of the other things is women don't tend to step up to put themselves forward as readily as, as their, count, their male counterparts do. So it's well understood that for any given job application, women will feel that they need to satisfy all the job criteria, whereas men are going to give it a go whether they you know, only satisfy part of them. So women are not stepping up with courage and confidence to have a go at things. They tend to be more risk adverse and there might be plenty of reasons for that. In fact, I I would suspect that goes back to childhood where we try and protect our, our children and, and, and particularly girls from, from taking risks. So there's two ways we can approach that sort of problem. We can actually acknowledge it in ourselves as women and say, well, I'm going to take a risk and have a go anyway and see what happens. And then from an organisation level, you can, what some organisations are doing are pulling down their job description criteria to the core 
minimal required um, competencies and experiences rather than a big list of potential qualities that might be required so that women can say, well, I actually satisfy all of those and I'm going to give the job a go. So that this can be a two-pronged approach or, or solution. And where does the child-rearing conversation come into all of this? So this is a delicate topic because it's it's touching on our greatest uh, often what people often often people's highest level core values it's often it's a common excuse for women not progressing their career that they choose children over career and i suspect that a lot of parents male or female would do that if they had to choose but the social expectation is that mostly it's women that have to make the choice and women still do the majority of childcare both, uh, and, and unpaid labour in, in homes. So until society sees that raising children is the combined responsibility of all parents, whatever gender they are, and that working does not abdicate parenthood, and then that society supports that with adequate childcare arrangements, it's not until that point that women will actually get better career opportunities. And that means that fathers need to feel comfortable and feel safe to take paternity leave, that fathers will have to leave work to pick up sick children from school and miss key social events because it's, you know, witching hour or, or whatever it is to look at, at home. In the context of sports medicine, team travel is a big issue here. So when fathers stand up to say they'll look after children while women go off and look after teams for a couple of weeks, then we will have equal opportunity. If we broadly categorise some of the barriers that you were speaking about into capacity, perceived capability, and then credibility, as in linking masculinity to leadership credibility, what is the college doing about these barriers? What are they doing to focus on helping applicants and then people within the college overcome some of these barriers? One of the first steps is to start measuring our gender metrics. So we have a transparent gender dashboard and we are measuring our gender balance all the way through the organisation. So currently we have, because, you know, as they say, you can't change what you don't measure. Currently, ACSCP fellows, uh, 23% of the fellows are women, 30% of registrars are women and about 30% of applicants to the training program are women. And that contrasts with the board makeup, which is 50% women and major committees and working groups, which are 40% women, and our CEO is also a woman. So if we have a look at how that compares to other professions working in the sports, sport and exercise medicine space, in Australia anyway, physiotherapists are two-thirds women and have gender parity at the Australian Physiotherapy Association board level. And if we look at orthopaedics, amongst the orthopaedic population, only 5% are women, but they're doing fantastic work and 15% are trainees and 25% of applicants are women with 20% of women at the board level. So they're doing some really fantastic things and we're working quite closely with them at at what's been successful for them because they face some of the same challenges. So one of our biggest issues is we're not seeing enough women apply to the training program Um, and we're yet to fully explore the reasons behind that. But some of them include sports culture. 
So uh, if we look at sports culture more broadly, it continues to tolerate marked gender inequality. So with pay, gra- pay gaps and media coverage and male teams employing male doctors, and, and this spills over to the medical profession as well in sport and exercise medicine. But I just might add here that there are some organisations doing amazing work here and Cricket Australia comes to mind with that and they are big game changers, so to speak. So that impact of having more masculine influence on on high-profile sport, particularly in the media, means that young doctors, young female doctors are seeing their concept of sport and exercise medicine is that they're seeing male doctors run onto football pitches treating professional male athletes and that's their vision. They're not really seeing um, what happens with women's sports teams because it's in the media less. They're not seeing what happens in community medicine because sport and exercise medicine isn't delivered. There's nothing in the curriculum for in medical school. It's not delivered in public hospitals. So they're not seeing the, the broad scope of sport and exercise medicine as their training. So part of our challenge will be to reach people with that the greater view of what sport and exercise medicine is and all of the great opportunities there are for both men and women in a career in sport and exercise medicine. Have you seen this change in recent years with increased coverage of women's sports? I don't think we can tell yet. I think there is great momentum and great um, groundswell towards better coverage of female sport and some of our female athletes in Australia and New Zealand are world class in terms of their performance, their advocacy for their sport, their countries and their gender and I'm sure there will be knock-on effects from that but, but we are yet to see those in sport and exercise medicine. Louise, how are you creating equitable opportunities for everyone within the college today? If we look at First of all, we've had a quick discussion around people choosing to apply for the training program. But before you can get into your sport and exercise medicine specialty career, you need to get on the training program. And we've identified that there has been some implicit gender bias in that process. So the the things that we've, the actions we've taken to overcome that have included uh, making sure that there's enough diversity on the selection panel on the interviewing selection panel, not just gender diversity, but but greater diversity as well, that we are not using names on the CV, that we are not weighting the coverage of male sports teams as heavily in the CV scoring system, and that we are setting gender targets for applications so that we will be intending to put as many females onto the training program until we get gender balance as possible. So they're the main things we're looking at 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 the entry level. And in terms of going through, we've actually also created a Women in Sport and Exercise Medicine Advisory Committee, which is only which is less than 12 months old. And they are helping us to identify barriers through that career pipeline and advise the board and committees. And it also provides a forum for women to connect and share and learn and uh, an annual meeting at our conference, at our annual conference. And it's also a place to explore opportunity to grow women in leadership. So they are informing where the where the blockages are happening. Some of the other things that have been identified are that women are not getting the opportunities to do the more the better paid professional sports, contact sports in particular. So male football teams, where a lot of the action still is, are still preferentially employing men. There's a lot of women at the assistant level and virtually no women at the chief medical officer level. So that's a problem for and our trainees get really bothered by that. Another thing is that we've got 
very flexible training and a protract and, and you're allowed to finish your training you have 10 years to finish your training so that's intended for men and women to take parental leave to work part-time and still complete their training adequately and this is a this is a great example of how things get in the way and uh, of women participating as equally as men and we don't even see it so one of our women raised the fact that our conference is always the first week back at, in the school year. So it's a really difficult t- week to take off and a week either side would be much easier. And that was something that we had not even identified. And there's lots of those little things that happen along the way that affect one gender perhaps more than the other. How have men received the positive discrimination towards women? I think this is a very challenging time for men. I think that it's it's going to be uncomfortable for at least another decade or so until there's gender balance through our organisations. And I think it's very uncomfortable for some men because they don't see that they've been in a position of privilege where they've been discriminated toward for such a long time. It's just been the status quo. So when we have these discussions, particularly around quotas, which is a very polarising subject, um, and I prefer to use the word targets, even though it's pretty much the same, they can feel a little challenged and I think that's because they're unfamiliar with the concept of discrimination but I think that if we can ride through this period of discomfort and it's probably going to be quite a while then I think we'll all come out the other end with more robust inclusive and diverse organizations and we won't have to be having this gender discussion so I would say that I have felt really supported by the men who feel strongly about gender balance and a lot of those are sitting in leadership roles in our organisation and I suspect that the men who are not particularly interested in the subject are the ones that are going to feel that they're being discriminated against. So I would just encourage men to think about our children and our children's children and what kind of world and opportunities we want for them and being confident that in the end our organisations will all be strong with more diversity. Louise, I want to be mindful of your time, but before we let you go, could you leave our listeners, who are very clinically oriented, with three tips for taking on leadership roles in medicine? Sure, Daniel. The first one would be to just do it. Just start early, take little steps, find little groups that don't take too much of your time, pretty, pretty very early in your career. The second one would be to find a mentor at least, or at least a sounding board, somewhere safe to ask dumb questions. And I guess the third would be to keep learning leadership skills through little methods. Keep it open on your radar on social, on podcasts and stuff. So continually learning outside the, the classic clinical sphere. And if our listeners would like to learn more about ACSEP and find out what the college is up to, where should they go? Well, we have a lot of information on the website if you just Google ACSEP. And I guess the way you would experience more about our organisation would be to attend our annual conference. Um, And next year, we have a conference in Canberra in February, and it's open to all healthcare professionals, and we would welcome you all to come. Louise, thank you very much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this BGSM podcast with Dr. Louise Tallow. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with friends or leave us a review and connect through our social media channels. You can listen to a new clinically relevant BJSM podcast every Friday, and there is no better place to find them than on the BJSM app. As always, we hope you have a physically active day.